Bible, let's dive into it. Uh, Mark chapter 4, as we continue our study in Mark's amazing gospel. If you need to borrow a Bible, grab one of the uh, Pew Bibles and turn to page 839. So Mark chapter 4, page, page 839 in the Pew Bible. And excuse me while I take a drink of my chamomile. Uh, okay. Uh, Once you're there, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We're not going to read the entire chapter, just going to read the main parable, verses 1 through 9. Again, he, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in on it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of spoil or soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Verse 7, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but if, if I was one of the men or women in that large crowd and I had traveled 125 miles on foot because I heard about some miracle worker named Jesus who, who taught things about God that were so astounding that, that people's minds were being blown. And after a six-day journey to get there, and all I got was a story about some irresponsible farmer throwing seeds around, I'd be pretty disappointed, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of what we just read. This morning, as we jump into Mark 4, we're looking at one of two chapters in the Gospel of Mark that records Jesus' actual teaching, which is chapter 4 here and chapter 13. And chapter 4 is entirely parables. There are four parables. We're only going to look at one of them because, as as I'll talk about, the other three are still talking about the same thing, but with a little different of an emphasis. Now, a parable is a kind of story where the storyteller is trying to connect you to what is unknown via the vehicle of things that are known, and this was without doubt Jesus' favorite way to teach. And as the chapter opens up, Jesus is again teaching by the sea to a very large crowd of people, as we learned last week, who've come from places like Tyre and Sidon in the north and and Idumea and beyond the Jordan in the south and east, and some of whom came 125 miles almost all of whom would have had to walk on foot a six-day journey. The lucky ones may have had a a mule or something, and very few would have had a horse. So after walking for six days and, and being your day to actually hear this amazing teacher teach, and this is what you get, a story about a farmer. I mean, I could get this down back on my side of the Jordan. Why did I have to spend six days and walk out here? I would feel kind of gypped, right? I mean, this, this, this is the amazing miracle worker? This is the guy who's teaching about God is so astounding? He's just talking about a farmer and a bad farmer, by the way, right? We'll talk about that in a little bit. I mean, my Yelp review would be not gracious. This was not worth the walk, you know, not that amazing. No, so, of course, I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but how about you? Does Jesus ever let you down? 
You've ever been disappointed by him? I mean, this, this is what I've done, and, and this is what I'm getting? All that I've sacrificed to get here, and this? Are you kidding me? Now, maybe disappointed is too strong a word because disappointed is directly connected to expectations. And if you were here last week, we learned that, you know, um, a true disciple no longer has expectations put on Jesus. So we are simply satisfied to sit and, and listen from him. So disappointed may not be the right word, but how about discouraged? Have you ever been discouraged by Jesus? Have you ever been discouraged by living your faith or having your faith in Jesus? Have you ever thought that perhaps this was too good to be true and you're finding out that it probably is? You ever felt like being a Christian, you got picked to play on the wrong team, the losing team? I mean, have you ever felt if you're politically engaged that you're haunted by the specter that you might be on the wrong side of history for standing up for the teachings and values of Jesus? However you want to phrase it, have you ever been concerned or felt that it's just getting harder and harder to be a Christian today in our society. Maybe it's just, maybe it's not quite so cerebral for you. Maybe you're just, you're struggling, and, and you just, you've been trying to have victory in your life. Uh, maybe you're trying to overcome an, a, a personality issue like anger. You keep lo- losing it, or you just, your marriage is, is difficult, and you're trying to make it work, and it just doesn't seem to be paying the dividends of your investment, and you're saying, is this all I've got? Is this what I get? I mean, really? Maybe you feel like, man, when I, when I first became a Christian, it was like I felt God everywhere. It was exciting. It was all the time. And now that fire is more of a slow burn. Right? Or that first year, it seemed that God was working everywhere and he was on the move, but now not so much. Maybe he shelved me and moved on to somebody else. <clears throat> if you're old enough to remember the Jesus movement... It seemed like people everywhere all the time were coming to Christ. It's like all you had to do was brush out a Bible and people would weep and, and want to pray right then and there. Everyone was throwing up the one-way sign. Everyone was reading the Bible. Not so much anymore. Deconversion stories are the new trend. Christians compromise seems to be the norm rather than Christians having conviction. Story after story of failing pastors, the death of evangelicalism, all these news articles coming out, declining numbers in attendance, rising numbers in atheism. You get the point. On and on it can go. It can be pretty discouraging. You think that the disciples ever got discouraged. I bet they did. I bet these disciples knew what it was to be discouraged. We know they were often confused, right? We know they were often wrong, but I bet you they were also discouraged. You see, if that sounds surprising to you, that's because, as I said last week, we know the story too well. We know how this is supposed to go. The disciples are the good guys. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the scribes, they're the bad guys. Jesus' family doesn't get it, but that's okay. They will. After all, Jesus' half-brothers, they wrote some of the books in the New Testament. Jesus is going to get betrayed and handed over to Rome. They're going to kill him. But the, the surprise ending in three days, he raises from the grave, and we're off to the races. Now, whether or not you believe in the story, you at least are familiar with the contours of it. But that's because we're living our lives based on 2,000 years of Christian history. What would it have been like if you didn't have 2,000 years of history to rely upon? What would it have been like for these disciples? Now, I'm sure they were excited 
right? Jesus picked me, as we learned last week. I got picked. I'm chosen by him. I mean, they knew very well. They were the unqualified, the unworthy, the unfit. He didn't pick one of the Pharisees. He didn't pick the, the, the brilliant scribe. He didn't pick the wealthy tax collectors. He didn't pick them. He picked me. And that would have been pretty exciting. But probably after the excitement wore off that this miracle worker, this amazing teacher picked you, maybe he started to realize, wait a minute, maybe it's because he couldn't get anyone else. And that's why he chose us. Because if you're looking through the passages, and it's, it's ever always in the background, particularly starting in chapter 2, chapter 1, we're just right out of the gate with this amazing stuff, but starting in chapter 2, in the background, there's the beat of a different drum, there's opposition, there's rejection, not everybody agreed with Jesus. Now, we got distracted because we saw the amazing authority by which he taught, which was the point, but if you're just reading between the lines, it's right there in black and white, not everyone agreed with Jesus. Not everyone was on board. As a matter of fact, the entirety of the leadership of your people disagreed with him. They questioned him. They challenged him. And they wrote him off as someone who's possessed by the devil himself. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 6. That's not a good sign when every one of the leadership class has a problem with them. And what makes matters worse, oh my goodness, even his mother, Mary, and his brothers and sisters are not on board with him. Maybe we got hoodwinked. Maybe we should have thought about this a little bit more. Maybe I should have considered this before I just left my family business and livelihood and followed after him and hooked my train up to his wagon or whatever expression that would work. You know what I'm saying? What now? You'd be pretty discouraged when you started to realize, wait a minute, everyone, this is not all roses here. But what they saw and what they're hearing is real. I mean, this is not fake. That leper really was a leper and he ran away clean. The paralyzed man could not walk. I've seen him for years. And he picked up a mat and ran off jumping for joy. This is real. What is going on? Jesus has been talking about the kingdom. We're seeing evidence of it. But this opposition... These are the guys that taught me growing up in Torah and synagogue. I, I remember sitting under Hamel uh, 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 over there and, and Gamal over there teaching me Scripture and Jacob over there, and they're all against Jesus. What would you do? Would you be discouraged if you were these guys? About the early Christians, they were feeling the same kind of thing. Things were not going well. They were not in a Christian nation. There was persecution on the rise. They need to be encouraged, and that's why Mark 4 was written, because he, Jesus knows we can be discouraged when we look around. More importantly, that's why Mark 4 includes four parables about the kingdom of God. And these four parables, we're going to see encouragement from the parable, in particular the one we're going to focus on, the purpose of parables in general, and then the application of the parable, because Jesus knows we can be discouraged it can seem like nothing's going to change, and there's no hope here, and he wants us to take heart. So let's look at the first one. Encouragement from the parable, verses 3 through 9. We already read it, so we're not going to read the parable again. Most people, when they've read this parable, they have taken the parable as a way to think about these are the different types of people as it relates to discipleship, right discipleship or wrong discipleship. So you have the hardened ground is one kind of person, the rocks is another, and the thorns, and the good soil as examples of the kinds of people, how we should and shouldn't respond to the gospel. That's how most people have heard of it. 
But in fact, this parable is much more than a metaphor for human psychology or attitudes we need to have to the gospel message. Now, if that's how you've read this parable, don't worry, because Jesus actually mentions things about discipleship. We'll get to that in verses 14 to 20. But did you notice in the subheadings, look at your Bible, in the subheadings themselves, which, by the way, are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, the, The translation committees are trying to help you interpret this passage, and they name the parable, and it's called the parable of the sower. It's not the parable of the soils. You see, this parable is not about you and I, at least not primarily. In fact, this parable like all the parables in this chapter, have to do with Jesus and the kingdom of God. In other words, the parables of Mark 4 all have to do with the historical inbreaking of the kingdom of God through Jesus, who is the sower of the gospel. So let's look at it with that kind of as our framework. Now, we see this picture. Jesus tells a story of a farmer, and he seems pretty irresponsible. I mean, the guy is just throwing seeds everywhere. Now, for us urban suburbanites, we just read this and we go, yeah, that's just the way you do it, right? Because that's what the Bible says. But if any of you grew up on a farm and you know about sowing seed, you don't just grab seed. It's not like feeding chickens here. What's the first thing you're supposed to do? You plow so that the soil is ready and you can put the seed in there. Duh. But here we have this guy. He's just like, well, I'm going to throw some seed over here. I'm going to throw some seed on the pathway over there. So some seed falls on the path. Some seed falls on the rocky ground. Some falls on the thorns. And eventually some fall in good soil. Even though he's just kind of throwing it everywhere, eventually some falls in there and produces a bumper crop. Did you see that? 30, 60, 100 fold. Friends, 10% yield on a crop is good. Right? So let's look at it in modern terms. For those of you who do any financial investing, if you got a 10% return on your portfolio this year, you'd be pretty happy, right? What about if you got a 30%, 60%? What if you got a 100% return on your portfolio? You'd be like, man, this is a miracle. And it was. And that's exactly how they saw this. As a matter of fact, Genesis 26.12 tells us that a hundredfold crop was seen as divine blessing from God himself. In other words, up until the very end of this parable, this is actually pretty discouraging. Um, Three-fourths, three out of every four of the seeds is going to waste. There's not going to be a return on this investment up until the very end, and we realize this is not a waste. This, This parable ends in a massive bumper crop. It ends in a miracle. The real point of the parable is not the soil, it's the sower and the seed. Friends, it's no coincidence that chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Jesus says, the sower went out, and the same word in the Greek appears when Jesus declares his purpose in chapter 1, verse 38, saying, this is why I came out. Chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus says this, Let us go to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out, the same reason the sower went out. And to make the point even clearer in verse 14, look at verse 14 of the text, Jesus says that the seed is the word of God. In other words, 
The sower in our parable is just doing what Jesus has been doing all along, throwing out the seed of the gospel everywhere he can. In chapter 1, verse 38, he says, that I may preach there also, for that's why I came. In Mark chapter 2, verse 2, it says, and he was preaching the word to them. In Mark chapter 2, verse 13, and all the crowd was coming and he was teaching them. And then chapter 4, verse 1, and he was teaching them. In other words, the parable is saying, listen, hearer, reader, disciple, don't suppose that the opposition and the rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees or by the people or even those who should know better like his mothers and and brothers and sisters will have the last word. In other words, reader, don't suppose that what you're seeing now will be the last word. Despite all discouraging odds, the harvest in Jesus' ministry is going to be mind-blowing. It's going to be miraculous. This is God's MO. Now, if you're a Christian, you might be thinking, well, yeah, I knew that. They didn't. They didn't realize that this is how the kingdom's going to work, that this is how God tends to operate. And the reality is you will often not see it or even know it's happening, but it's working. This is his point. Look down in verse 26 and 28 as Jesus shares another parable about the kingdom. Verse 26, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Likely, you're not even going to see much evidence of what God is up to, this growth that's taking place. It can actually seem imperceptible actually seem insignificant, kind of like a mustard seed, until it grows, then watch out, which was the point, by the way, of Jesus' other parable of the mustard seed. And we see the connection because both in verse 26 and verse 30, Jesus says, so what do we think about the kingdom of God? This is exactly what it's like. Now, when you hear the phrase, what do you think of the kingdom of God, and it's like a mustard, Jesus saying it's a mustard seed, and you're not going, what? That's because you're used to the story. If I'm a peasant, and I see the power of Rome, I see what kings live like, and I see their kingdom, and somebody says, this is the kingdom of God, I'm thinking power, I'm thinking might, I'm thinking authority, and then he follows it up with, it's like a mustard seed. I'm like, what are you talking about? But Jesus says, this is what this kingdom's like. It may seem insignificant. It may seem imperceptible to you. It may seem like nothing's going on. But this is the way this kingdom works. And it is working powerfully. And when you see it come to its fruition, you will be blown away. See, the whole point is to encourage us that while the odds might seem bad, living for Christ, faithful to do what you're doing, it may seem like a waste. It may seem like it's making no difference The encouragement here is it does because the success is directly tied to the sowing done by the sower. Friends, this is just a foundational biblical principle, so let's talk about it. Learn to see your life not merely through the perspective of this world and this time. You want a, a straight ticket to despair, anxiety, discouragement? You base everything in your life on this life, and that's what's going to happen. 
But if you can see your life through the far greater purposes of what God is doing, that you might be one little cog, but you are in a cog of an amazing machine. The, the purposes of God and the effectiveness of His Word radically will change the way you see every interaction you have. One of the first times that I had to really trust in that principle, I had been asked to speak at uh, USC. Uh, they, this is back in the 90s, and they would do, I don't know if they do it now, but every week they would have a platform built right in front of Tommy Trojan. So if you know the campus, that would be right there, this big platform. And for every day of the week, they would have speakers, and the keynote would finish with Dr. Dallas Willard. He was the head of the philosophy department at USC, a brilliant Christian thinker. And for some reason, for two years, I got asked to be the first presentation like on Monday, and it would all culminate till Friday. And so at the time, I worked with in a music thing, and uh, won't get into the details, but a lot of young men who were gangbangers got saved. They were rappers, and they wanted to talk about their story through rap music. So that's what we would do. They would rap, and then I would preach. So we would do this in prisons and juvenile halls, and we did this on college and universities. I got to preach at Occidental and then at USC. And the first year was great. It was fantastic. So they invited us back for the second year. And the second year, I guess word had gotten out because there was all manner of militant campus groups trying to shut us down, holding up signs, giving us the bird, yelling out profanities, throwing cans. It was a nightmare. It got so out of control that campus security shut us down. Now, they shut me down halfway through my message, and basically they called it, escorted us off campus for our safety, but it was more like we were getting kicked off the campus, even though they had invited us. And the guys were bummed out. There's about seven of them. And I said, they were bummed out because they, they'd just come to Christ and, and their theology wasn't yet formed. They said, what, what's the point? And so you guys are seeing this from the wrong perspective. In your music, in your raps, and in your testimonies before between songs, you gave the gospel clearly, concisely, courageously, with compassion. And I got to preach the message for 10 minutes before they shut us down. We have no idea what God will do with those sown seeds. Now, the reality is, I wish I could button this up with like a, and one of the most angry guys got convicted and became a Christian. Eh, we just got kicked off the campus, never invited back. A defeat, fail, right? But that's if you look at it through earthly eyes. The parable of the sower says, do not look at life through those eyes. You will sow seeds, and three-fourths of it may seem like a waste. Like, no, there's going to be no fruit from this, but the success does not depend on what you're doing. The success is directly tied to the sower of the seed, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, but in order, guys, and I realize, to go through life like that, how in the world is that possible? Because everything in our lives are telling us to live our lives on pragmatism and utilitarianism and our own experiences and the now, right? I mean, all of our marketing campaigns are constantly gearing us to be that way. Our technology makes us feel like everything should be now the way I want it. This is a radical perspective shift. But it's the, it's the perspective shift that will change you in your core. To go from a realization that this world is not, not about me, my world, my life is not about me, it is about the kingdom of God and his purposes. And the way that radical shift begins, we kind of touched on last week. Remember, chapter and verses are not inspired by the Spirit, so sometimes that, that makes us feel like whatever was in chapter 3 stays in chapter 3, kind of like Vegas, right? But the reality is everything kind of comes over. And do you remember how chapter 3 ended? Jesus saying, here's my family. They're the ones who sit and listen and want to be with me. That radical perspective shift comes by being one of those, being one of his disciples, 
And as chapter 3 made it very clear, there's no um, kind of or not. We're we're either going to put demands on Jesus or realize he has a demand on us, right? We either put our claims on him or we realize he has a claim on us. Discipleship is not maybe, sort of. It's a yes or no. It's like being pregnant. You're not kind of pregnant. You either are or you're not. Um, Women, obviously, right? So discipleship's the same way. You're either in or you're out. And, And by the way, that's not me saying that. That Jesus says that. And let's look at him saying it right now as we look at the purpose of the parables in verses 10 to 13. I want to listen to what Jesus says, particularly in verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with him, excuse me, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. Verse 11, there, here it is, there it is. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those on the outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Did, did you catch the two categories there? Jesus said, to, to you guys, to you who want to sit and hear from me and you, and, and you want to be with me, to you guys, I've given you the secrets of the kingdom, we'll talk about that, but to those on the outside, everything's going to be in parables. Jesus says, to you guys on the inside, you get it. The ones on the outside don't, and that's why I speak in parables. Now, he says, you've been given the secrets to the kingdom. Now, that, we haven't heard that expression before, so what's he talking about there? What's the secret of the kingdom? Well, we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, and I keep forgetting this. There we go. Romans 16, Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ... According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, that last phrase, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret, it's what's called in the positive. In other words, it further defines what just came before it. The gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ is the mystery that has been kept secret for so long. Paul says something similar in Ephesians, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, the mystery of his will that all humanity would be one in Christ. The secret of the kingdom is Jesus Christ himself. The two are inseparable. And Jesus says, because you've wanted to hear, you wanted to be with me, to you have been given the secret of the kingdom, and that is recognizing who I am. Now, friends, as we know in Mark's gospel, That doesn't mean that they entirely understood it or knew what to do with it. But that's okay. They'll change as we'll see. Right now, they're doing just whatever they can to hang on to what's what's going on around them. And that's encouraging to know. Friends, that our discipleship, following Jesus, doesn't mean you have to understand him entirely. Chances are you don't. Following Jesus doesn't mean you have to know what to do in every single circumstance because chances are you won't. Sometimes discipleship is just hanging on. I'm just, I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what's going on, but I'm just here. Because we see that in the early disciples. And then Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6. That's this, this passage here. It says, ominous warning. And that says why Jesus teaches in parables. He says, because parables, they reveal as much as they cover. Parables both bring light and shadow. 
kind of like a stained glass window, right? Stained glass windows. From the outside, they're really kind of blah, dull and unimaginable. They're just kind of a mash of colors. But from the inside, they are brilliant and beautiful. It's the same thing with, with Jesus teaching parables. You want to be a disciple. You got to be in or out. You got to make your choice. If you want to be on the inside, you will begin to see it. If you want to be on the outside, it'll all not make sense to you. So let's move on to Jesus' application of this parable in verses 13 to 20. We won't read the whole thing, but Jesus does make a very interesting statement in verse 13, doesn't he? Look what he says. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Whoa, did you notice that? So Jesus is saying, wait, if if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand any of the parables? In other words, The key to understanding this parable is key to understanding any of Jesus' parables. So we need to be clear on what he's, how, how do we do this then? Now notice, so verses 14 to 20, Jesus is actually going to kind of unpack the very parable he taught in verses 1 through 9, or 3 through 9, which is why we're not going to reread it. All the details are almost identical with one exception, and so that's where we draw our attention to. This repeated theme particularly about uh, this repeated theme of hearing, but particularly hearing the Word. Eight times Jesus says that in these few verses. Four times Jesus comes out and says, are you hearing it? So Jesus says, you want to understand parables, then it depends on how you hear me. He said, what do you mean how we hear Jesus? Now, now look at this. There's the, there's these three groups that correspond to the first groups. There's the people on the path, the thorny ground, uh, the, the rocks and everything. They correspond in Jesus' interpretation. You can see that in verse 15, verse 16, verse 18. Jesus says, these people, they hear. But what's interesting is in the grammar, there's an unusual expression. And I know somebody in our church said, I really liked it when you'd help me understand the grammar. So for that one person, um, in the Greek, it's called an aorist subjunctive. For the rest of us, that just simply means it kind of refers to something that happened in this kind of, in this little moment, and, and it, it potentially happened, right? So the aorist means this happened in the past at some point, and the subjective mood, which we have in English too, is a mood of potential. It could have happened, but we're not quite sure. Now, they heard, Jesus says it, but it's kind of like, parents, you get this. When you talk to your kids, you say what? Did you hear me? No. Did you hear me? No, no, no. Did you, did you hear me? Okay, right? What are you asking? You're not saying, is the audio from my mouth bouncing off your eardrums? You're asking, are you dialed in and intending to obey me? That's what you're asking. What's interesting is, when Jesus talks about the good soil, it's the same word in English, here but the grammar changes drastically. So the first one was these words that probably don't mean much, this aorist subjunctive, but one, two, three, they were that way, but the fourth one changes dramatically. It's present indicative. In other words, it didn't just happen in a point. It's an ongoing thing that's happening right now, and it's an indicative. It's a statement of fact. It's not maybe it happened. This is happening. It is happening, and it's happening right now, and it's ongoing. So the way I can kind of illustrate that, if I don't have a chair up here, it's kind of like some people, you got the whole seat, but you, don't, you only need the edge because you listen like this. You're like, you're in, right? I can tell. You're in. Others of you, you need more than one seat because you're like, well, whatever, I'm listening, right? That's the difference. One is dialed in. 
I am, I mean, if a little spit came out of my mouth, you would circle it on your notepad and put the date, right? You are in. The other is like, yeah, just whatever. Say, this sounds Jesus stuff, behave stuff, whatever. Yeah, you're both hearing, but the other one's actually hearing. And Jesus says, you want to understand what I'm saying? Then you've got to be like that one. Now, notice though, some people might say, well, so those who didn't hear, Satan came away and took away, so those are those kinds of people, and, and if you don't hear right, then the desires of the world choke you out, and those are those kinds of people, and I think that can be true, but I think the better point is, look, if you're just not dialed in, if you're not saying, God, I, I need to hear from you, it can be the enemy, it can be the cares of this world, it can be persecution, all manner of things is going to take the gospel out of your heart. You're not one kind of person. All manner of things will take the gospel out of you if you're not making a point to be dialed in. I think that's what he's getting at here. And we saw this, didn't we, at the end of chapter 3, verse 34 and 35. The disciples, they want to hear the Lord. By the way, the word hearing or listen, uh, pay attention, appears 13 times just in our passage this morning. Listen, hear, pay attention 13 times. Mark is trying us to dial in to what disciples do. We hear, we engage. Discipleship is not what we can make of ourselves as much as it is but allowing the sower and the seed to produce a harvest within us that we could not possibly do on our own. Did you notice back in the text, um, in verse 8, uh, first of all, in verse 14, I want you to see that Jesus himself, as he's interpreting, he says, the sower sows the word. So he doesn't call it a seed anymore. The sower is sowing the gospel. And in verse 8, did you notice who's actually doing the changing and growing? The seed does. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding up to a hundredfold. It is the seed that's doing the growing. Jesus said the same thing in verse 27. The farmer has no idea that it's happening, but the seed is growing. Discipleship is not so much about what we do as much as what we're allowing the Word of God to do inside of us. And it all comes back to the way we hear, the way we are engaged. Unlike um, ancient religions and even now where revelation was often an object of the eyes and through like mystic visions and how we are as a culture, everything's visual, biblical revelation, the people of God have always received revelation through the ear and hearing. Hearing is, is always seen as the appropriate response to the voice of God. For you statistics nuts, in the Old Testament, 514 times the words listen and hear appear. Of those 514 times, 486 of them, it is the identical word for obey, shema. Of the 514 times that the words hear and listen appear in the Old Testament, 486 of them are synonymous with obey. And parents, you get that. Do you hear me? You're saying, will you obey me? To hear is to obey. This is why Paul says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Friends, this is why. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. This is a few page, books to the right. Uh, page 952 in the Pew Bible. This is why at Christ Community Church, we put a primacy on preaching. 
Not because I have an inflated ego and, and I want you to listen to me. Although it might be that I have an inflated ego, but that's not why I preach, right? We do it because the Word of God says this is God's means of doing the work. Look at what Paul says. Started at verse uh, 17, and we're going to take it all the way to 25. Paul writes, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, those on the inside, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, that's it. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, the doing of discipleship will naturally happen. That's what we see in our text in verse 27. The seed will grow and produce the harvest. It will naturally happen when we are focused on the being of discipleship, which is to hear, to listen to Jesus, to engage with Him. Mark 4 is all about the kingdom of God and how it can't be stopped. And it's true on the macro level, but it's also true on the personal level, friends. You need to hear that. Do not be discouraged. Don't, don't feel like giving up because you're not seeing the fruit you want to see. You've been pouring into this relationship, being loving, being Christ-like, and it's not working out. Do not despair. You've been praying for your son or daughter, and it just seems like they keep making worse choices. Don't get discouraged. Because when we see that fruit, it will be miraculous because the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Even if we cannot see it working, even if we might dismiss it or the world dismisses it insignificant, it'll be amazing to see. And friends, when you think about it, the fact that here we are 21 centuries after this was written is evidence that the kingdom cannot be stopped. And we praise that and we thank the Lord for that, to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of your kingdom. Though it's something we cannot see or often perceive, we know that it continues. Help us, Lord, not to view life through just the lens of this world, but to view life through the lens of what you are doing for your purposes through your word. Lord, that is hard to get to that, that perspective, but would you help us in community grow to be like that, to think these kinds of thoughts, to see the world through the lens of scripture and not the other way around. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.